the key word there when you're talking about being a new leader is new, not leader. You're new. You don't know anything at this point. So you need to ask questions, constantly be asking questions, constantly be trying to learn. Don't be afraid to say, I don't have that answer, but I'm going to go get it and then go get it. Go find the answers, go ask the questions. If you're not learning, then what's the point? I mean, you got to learn every day. From Exabeam, this is the new CISO, a show about the people who lead IT security teams, the challenges they face, and how they overcome them. If you like what you hear, please rate, review, and subscribe to hear our new episodes first. I'm Steve Moore, and today I speak with David Legenfelter, VP of Information Security at Penn National Gaming, about why a successful security leader never stops learning. We start at the beginning of Ligenfelter's journey. That is the wild west of tech in the early 90s. We cover how David forged his path in an era of trial and error, and how his drive for knowledge has informed his ability to communicate up the ladder and across teams. In the fast-growing industry of cybersecurity, it may go without saying that educating yourself is a key to growth. But should every security professional have a lab in their home? How does a technical mind approach business questions? And how can a cybersecurity leader break down silos to communicate effectively with vendors, team members, and higher-ups alike? David, thank you so much for joining the show. For the uninitiated, if you would, please introduce yourself. Not a problem. Welcome, everybody. My name is David Lingenfelter. I'm the Vice President of Information Security for Penn National Gaming. I've been with Penn for a little more than five years, but nearly a 30-year career in IT, vast majority of it being focused in the security front. Now, to kind of set the stage for the listener, David, what did you do prior to security stuff? You mentioned a long career there. I always like to kind of paint that for those that may be listening. What did you work on before you kind of got the security start? Sure. So, I mean, we'll go way back in time. I went to college for electrical engineering, graduated as an electrical engineer, tried to find a job in doing electrical engineering stuff. And it wasn't very easy in the early 90s to do that. Turned out my wife found an advertisement for a computer engineer. She's like, well, this is engineering and you like computers. So I went and I interviewed and lo and behold, landed a job at a small startup company and simply fell in love with the work worked with that company for a few years, and then started focusing more on the security front pretty early in my career, moved over to a consulting company where really that's where I started focusing on firewalls and network security protocols. And that's how I got my start. So when you were doing the non-security stuff, what's in the realm of, uh, you know, you find, was this an ad on the paper? Let's go back to that. Yeah, actually, this was in a newspaper back in the day before the, the whole internet thing blew up and all the online advertising for jobs and job searches. It was, it was a newspaper. It was a local company startup. I think I was employee number five and it was a VAR, a value added reseller. So basically the sales team would sell whatever they could sell to a company. And my job was to go in and be the subject matter expert and install it and train the company how to use it. We did everything from fax services to email gateways at the time to get some companies online with email to what we eventually ended up doing a lot of was 
remote access. This was the early days where people might have a PC at home and they would want to connect into their office PC. So we were doing a lot of that. And that's really where I started getting the feel for some of the security work of authentication and locking down systems. Yeah, there's a couple of things on the time machine there. So the first, there was a day for those listening, and many listening won't ever know this day, when you would open the paper to find a job or to look for jobs. And before Monster, right? That was kind of the other thing that, that you might have jumped into. But the other thing that many listeners might not know is just the idea of remote access being a thing that you might not natively have. You might have just a computer at work, may not even have that if you go back far enough. But the idea of remote access or even having a laptop or, or providing that is, is kind of a novel thing or was. What was that like when you're selling these sort of new concepts or you're not selling them, you're having to deploy them? How wild was that when you have an aggressive sales team at a startup and it's the early 90s and there's very little support documentation? How aggressive did you need to be as a learner? Yeah, it, it was the Wild West. We were having people at their homes and we had to make sure that they knew that they needed a modem and that would occupy their phone line. Most of these people didn't have multiple phone lines at home. They didn't have a broadband internet at home. It really didn't exist yet. So we were talking to companies who were really excited about allowing their workers to work remotely and then dealing with the opposite side of that of the end users, the workers going, okay, but how do I do this? Yeah, I've got a computer at home, but what's a modem? So it was a sharp learning curve. I remember one company we worked with, it was a charitable organization here in the Philadelphia area, and they wanted their workers working out of their homes. Well, part of my job was to go to these people's homes and set up the remote software on their workstations at home, which were personally owned. And it, I mean, it was quite a learning curve for me because it was my first time working with the true end users, the people that didn't understand IT. And there was a lot of different environments there. It was, it was a long road for me to learn how to talk to end users at that time. Let's spend a second on that. I have a lot of respect for, I've spent years doing sort of support or remote support as an application owner before I moved into InfoSec. You have to have a hell of a lot of patience and often get very creative in the way that you describe a problem or a scenario. Sometimes you can't even see what's happening. You're dealing with it over the phone in many cases, depending on how broken everything is. If nothing, it had to give you some form of patience. What else did it give you in that sort of remote, in the field, installing software, going into people's homes and that client relationship? Was a skill developed there or were you just focusing on tech? No, it, there was absolutely a skill there. Again, I went to college for an engineering degree I'm very technically minded, I think in analytical terms and going into people's homes that don't do that at all, don't understand. And they'd walk me into a computer that really had been outdated already and didn't have a modem in it. Some of them, it would have literally the modem hardware in its box still, because that was given to them by the company so that they could remote in. And they'd be like, yeah, here's the hardware they gave me. I don't know what this is or how this works. So I had to develop a, a skill very quickly of how to think not like a technical person. So here I am, early 20s, first job, out of college, technical job. I'm thinking, I'm all that. I'm going into these situations as a technical expert. And here I've got to come out of it and say, how do I talk to these people like I'm a human? It was a sharp learning curve for me. So I want to jump forward a little bit. You told me in an earlier conversation that there was a mentor of yours or a friend of yours that said, hey, 
If you're serious about your career, if you really want to solve interesting problems, you need to go into InfoSec. And this was early days of InfoSec. Tell me about this situation when, how did this light bulb go off in your mentor's mind? And how did you receive that message back in whatever the early 90s, whatever year this was, maybe late 90s? Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, this was mid 90s. I think it was my second job, my second company, a consulting company where I was doing a little bit more advanced work at the time. And this was really, I mean, this is aging myself and a lot of the listeners may be looking at this going, wow, that's unbelievable. But we're talking about technologies like VMware Workstation was still in beta at the time. Linux was also in beta at the time. And so in between gigs, in between assignments, I'd be playing with all this new technology. And I'd be doing it obviously at work and, and trying to learn so that we could use this for customers to help our services be better deployed with customers. And one of the more senior people there saw that I was really into technology and he started pointing me in a couple different directions to look at different types of tools and do certain things. And one day he came up to me and he was like, you're really good at this stuff. What do you think of it all? I was like, that's oh, pretty cool. I love learning. He's like, well, if you never want to be bored, if you want to constantly be learning, go into security. He's like, there's so many things out there from a security perspective that people don't understand, don't know. The bad guys are finding holes in all these products all the time or holes in the configuration of all these products all the time. He's like, you'll never be bored because somebody will always be trying to find a way around things. And that struck me right away. And then he gave me a couple examples, showed me an example of him working with a customer to tighten their security around their email system and literally showed me how to break into an email system. And I was blown away. Right. See, you had a warm intro into the concept. You had somebody who was sort of showing you this and saw you, saw your abilities and trying to align the human up with a new type of career direction. How did this person, like, I think this is an important moment to pause because many people lack that today. So even though that, that was many years ago, having someone over your shoulder, someone you trust to say, hey, you're really great at this. I think you should try this other thing that's more interesting, more lucrative, more aligned with your skill set. How did you find that connection with that person? Did they find you? Did you find them? Was, did it happen accidentally? What was that? And then I want to take that idea and try to roll that forward. So let's, let's go to the history. What was the relationship with that mentor? Yeah. So, I mean, I think about this a lot because the world was very different back then. Everything was new. I mean, we were all using new technology, doing new things. There was no history of all this computer equipment at companies. So it was all new. So he was more of a senior engineer at this company that I was working for. And we weren't even on the same assignment, but we happened to be both in the office one day in between assignments with customers. And I overheard a conversation going on, if, if I remember correctly. I mean, this was a long time ago, but I think I overheard a conversation going on. And I was like, hey what are we talking about? That sounds really interesting. And they were already tools that I was starting to play with on my own. And it just happened that we started a conversation. I mean, we, we were coworkers and he quickly picked up how eager I was just to play and learn new stuff. And he happened to have the same interests that I did of just, huh, wonder how that works. Let's figure it out. Let's reverse engineer it. And that's really how we got to know each other. If I remember correctly, we hadn't been on an assignment together before then. We were on a couple after that, and we got along really well and just constantly were bouncing ideas off of each other of how can we make this work and better yet, how can we break it? 
I think that's a really good perspective to have. I remember fondly when I was in IT, had yet to move into InfoSec. I had a similar friend. There were several of us, but there was one in particular where we would get together at least once a month to kind of build something or tear it apart or learn how different technologies would work, typically in the security space. And it really, it's beneficial because I think that, number one, the individual is better at all this than I was. So I learned from that perspective, but also just allocating the time to work on something that's an interest. But if you don't allocate the time, it'll never get done. If you don't do it with somebody else, the experience may not be as good. And Funny enough, one of the things we were doing was building labs, early versions of VMware. An interesting thing about that, some of the listeners may know this, depending on how many hosts you had, this was on Workstation and early versions of ESX, where you could set up a sniffer very easily because it, it would effectively broadcast all messages sent and received to the host interface. So you could carve information out and, and it was a pretty big flaw. And it was that way for a long time. You basically could create a very nice IPS for all your virtual machines because everything was being replicated. And it wasn't for years until it was fixed. We, we didn't consider that a flaw from our perspective. So we took full advantage of that in our labs and we would build that and we would take advantage of that and learn all the traffic flows and understand how things were working. And we would set up a VM farm an entire host of systems as a honeypot and throw it out there and just watch the bad actors play with it and break into it and see their techniques. I mean, it, we use that as a huge learning opportunity. And yes, it was fixed uh, over time. But while it was there, we all took great advantage of it because it was very useful for us to learn how people were doing things. We were running open source IPS. And later on, this person and I, we were working on a master's degree and utilize this sort of as a, a low rent, cheap tool to sort of test theories and things. But anyway, I, it's funny, I, you said that and it reminded me of that, that moment in time. Yeah, I mean, we, we all had labs at our houses. We were all running systems at our houses and we were trying to save up enough money to buy enough memory so that we could build virtual farms on our servers and on our workstations. But I mean, that's really how things happened back then. And like I said, I try to think back then, how did that all start? How did I grow my interest in this? And I try to relay that to people today, especially people coming into the industry of just play, just go out there and do things and play. And I know it's a different world now, but there's still a lot of technology out there that people can use at their homes. It's not expensive. You can still build a lot of systems at home and play with them and see how they work, see how they break. Well, let's chat about that for a second. Initially, people were bringing racks into their home and whatever room of the house it was actually in was 12 degrees hotter and your electric bill was high. And then you have a move into virtualization on many fronts. And now it's different yet again. Now people are sort of even building their labs in the cloud. So that's another sort of migration that's happened in your lifetime. Do you have any advice to those that are when you tell them to go play and go learn, ideally, this is someone who's not yet in security or maybe they're in and, and looking to evolve. I mean, what are you telling them in terms of advice? Is there anything that you say, hey, if you're going to go learn and build a lab and go explore, you should do these things. Finish that sentence for me. Yeah, I mean, I've told a few people this and it's basically build an environment that you know is not secure. Build it out of the box, maybe just set up an operating system, set up a web server, 
but set up tools on there to monitor all the traffic. And there, there's a lot of freeware out there. Like you said, there's free IPSs, IDSs out there still that you can monitor for logs. And there are other tools that you can pull logs together that are usually free. And I said, just, just do that. See what happens. Because the difference today than when I started was the internet wasn't as verbose. Now it's obviously everywhere. It's everything. You go and you put a website out on one of the cloud services, it doesn't take long for that to be seen by the bots and for you to start seeing traffic against that website. And it's fascinating to see where all that's coming from. So my advice to people is typically set something up and see how long it takes for people to notice it, how long it takes for the bots to notice it, what sort of activity are you seeing against it early, and then I tell them to use some of the other tools like Metasploit or something like that against their own sites and say, set up another site and act like the attacker against your site to see how the tools work as well, because these are the same tools the bad guys are using. So play both sides. Do you think that the organizations should pay for their security staff's sort of personal virtual educational environments? Do you think that's something that should be accounted for and part of their, their learning plan? Ideally, probably. But again, if you go down that path, you, you run into a problem of people feel like it's part of their job. And I never want it to feel like it's part of their job. I want them doing it because they want to. So while, yes, I want to encourage it. And if I can help push something towards them or help them cover the cost of a license or something like that, more than happy to do that. But I don't want it to become part of the curriculum and part of their requirement as the job. If you're doing this because you like it and because it's growing on you and you're falling in love with learning about security, then you should be out doing it. And I'm there to help point you in different directions. But as far as fully funding, again, I think it's something that the person needs to want to do. You brought up an excellent point. When I was interviewing for staff of any kind, one of the measures that I probably maybe overemphasized, but I was very keen on was just what I called want to. How much want to does this person have? And if you have a high degree of want to, you're not going to wait for someone to pay for your training. When I look back on the thousands of dollars, I had nothing, very little money, but would allocate my discretionary income toward learning through any mechanism I could because I enjoyed it, not because someone was telling me to learn these things. And I think you bring up an excellent point there. You also have to get very creative, or you should be creative. Is there, maybe I can't afford the enterprise scanning platform, but maybe there is a free or open source version that maybe takes a little more tinkering, but I understand the concept. I think that's the message I would share. That's something that I certainly look for in interviews also when I'm interviewing people. I am looking to see, are they taking initiative on their own? Do they talk about any of the things they've done outside of work? And if they don't, sometimes I'll come right out and ask them, do you have a lab at home? What do you do in your spare time when it comes to computers or computer security? And that tells me a lot about a person. Like you said, it shows me the drive. It shows me the desire to learn. And it shows me the creativity. Some of these freeware tools do take more time and more expertise to get up and running than some of the pay for tools. So if you're willing to go to that extra length, then I know how serious you are about wanting to learn. No question. I want to pivot a little bit, talk a bit about, you said you're an analytical thinker, you were an EE major, you had to adapt and change moving into kind of the first job out of college. 
I'm guessing there has to be a series of adaptive moves that you've had to make, especially as you become someone in leadership and executive leadership. I want to jump forward. When did you go into management? So that was kind of a gradual transition. We were a small company. I was working for a company that was making mobile device management software. In fact, before that, we were making software that helped remote access for people with laptops. But we were, we were building a mobile device management software platform for cell phones, mobile devices. And I was responsible for security for the company. But again, we were small, so it was mainly technical. But as we were developing this product and this platform, myself, my counterpart who ran the IT operations and the head of development, we were all having these conversations about how to build this. And it just kind of morphed through that entrepreneurial spirit of, well, we should be doing this and this is why we should be doing it. And this is how much I think something's going to cost. And I mean, it was really very organic how I got my start in it. From there, I started talking to much larger companies as somebody trying to sell this platform. So we'd have sales team go in and they'd have sales engineers and then technical questions would come up about how we built our cloud platform and how we built the product and what are the security around it? Because this was early in the cloud days. So I would be brought in and I'd be talking with CISOs and with CIOs and sometimes even CEOs of companies. And that's where I started learning there's a big difference between being a technical leader and being a business leader. So I learned a lot through those conversations and just being grilled questions that from a technical perspective of how did we build this were more along the lines of how do you invest in this and how do you protect the intellectual property of this and a whole bunch of questions that I hadn't thought of. So it was really just growing with the industry. How were those questions? Because I think there's a lot of people who are listeners who find themselves today even getting vacuumed up into those rooms and into those meetings where they may be an exceptional technician. Now, security leadership now is evolving and there's many representatives from many different backgrounds, but the vast majority come up in a similar way that you're describing about yourself. What was or what were some of the moments where you were uncomfortable in these business meetings that's maybe going outside of a technical chat? What are the themes or the questions that you're like, I'm not ready for this. I don't have a great answer out of the gate for this, but is there anything in particular that you can recall or anything that you recommend as a tip for somebody who is you right now going into those meetings and they're not ready? Yeah. So a couple of them, I mean, I, I remember one specifically when we went into this meeting and the technical owners on the customer side were, were gung-ho. They really wanted this platform. So they wanted to bring in the, the leadership from our company to sell to the leaders of, of their company. And we're sitting there and going through the pitch. And then I don't remember if it was the CISO or CIO. Somebody was like, yeah, I, I get it. This is all really great stuff, but we don't have the money for this right now we're not going to buy this. Tell me why I should be spending money on this as opposed to something else that I can make money off of. How is this going to help my company make money? And I didn't have an answer. We didn't have a canned answer at the time for that question because this wasn't about making money. This was about protecting your data. So we were thinking more technically of, well, we're protecting the end user. He's like, yeah, but all my intellectual property is in these databases, back of house. I don't need this. So it was really that shift of, yeah, it's a good technology. Yes, it serves a purpose. Yes, that purpose does land on us, but I have more important things. 
And that that was a big one. I really like that. And honestly, that question, that applies to every security leader, every security manager, director, VP, CISO. You were in a position when you were trying to justify your one-year, two-year plan, you're effectively answering that question when you're trying to get budget, when you're trying to convince others for cooperation. Would you agree to that? Yeah. Everybody that's in this industry, everybody that is looking to be a CISO or is a CISO knows that their job is a cost center. We don't turn profit. At the same time, we need to understand how to sell to people that are mainly concerned with profit. I would even take it a step beyond and say it's a good thought experiment to have internally to state the answer to the question before it's asked, but then also have it as a question that you used maybe to your vendors. I think the question in terms of why should I prioritize this investment is not only something that you must answer internally, I think it's something that you answer before the question is even asked internally as part of your justification. Many security vendors might not realize that you are effectively inside sales for them inside your company. And I think that having that question is something that you not only use internally, but also then ask of your vendors to see how well have they listened to the rest of what you have going on and what words might they use and justification might they use or could they give for you? What do you think about that? Or do you think that's worthwhile thought experiment or would you subscribe to that? Absolutely, I do. I mean, I I drill my vendors all the time. I mean, it's actually a standard question that I have now for them of, okay, why should I buy this? Why should I spend money on this? And I know why I have the answer. I already have the justification or I wouldn't even be talking to them, but I want to hear it from them. I want to hear their justification of why should I buy this new security widget to plug into my environment? And if they don't have an answer, I talk them through it and go like, look, guys, these are the questions I'm going to be asked when I present a six or seven figure request to my management for a product. The vendors need to have the answer. So I ask them straight up, why am I buying this? What are you doing for me? And honestly, I think even taking it a step beyond, because it's not only why should I buy this or how can we best justify or what's the benefit that comes from the features? I think it's also in what order should I spend my money? Meaning, do they have the ability to listen to your one-year, two-year, three-year plan? And then to talk about what should be the order of spend, right? Because you can't spend it all at once. There's a limit to how much you can spend or to do at one time. And so do you know enough of yourself and does your vendor know enough of you to kind of give that order, honestly, to say, you know what, it's extremely important, but you have this other task you should do first to get ready in order to be successful at the second, right? Maybe it's six months from now. Yep. And honestly, I I appreciate the vendors that are willing to take a step back and say, you know what? You don't need the full suite right now. You don't need this product. You need this product, or you don't even need a product right now. You need to get these things in line first. And it's something that both fortunately and unfortunately I've had over the years, small security teams. So with a small security team, I need to understand how do I prioritize the projects and the changes that we need to make to the environment? Because as everybody in security knows, the environment's constantly changing. So security of the environment always has to be changing as well. But how do you prioritize that? I mean, I would love to put everything in place that I know we need to protect the company, but that's constantly changing. So I'm constantly putting new things in place. So I have to figure out how do I prioritize my team's time to balance the 
looking at the existing information, looking at the existing systems, and looking at the future to new technology that can help close gaps. And I appreciate when vendors are willing to help me with that and not just try to push their product down my throat because their product will solve all my problems. And there are plenty of products out there that are full suites of platforms that will solve many problems, but I don't have the resources to even get those deployed. So now Mr. Vendor, who's selling me a full suite, helped me prioritize and make this work for me so that I can sell it to management and say, this is going to be a 18 month, a 24 month, a 36 month project to get to this end state game, which is the ideal state for the current being, but it's going to take us time to get there. And this is how the vendor is going to help us do that. Those who listen frequently know that none of this is rehearsed. This is a conversation in the truest form. Often the guest and myself will meet briefly with a camera on just to kind of meet because a lot of times we're strangers. I do take notes in the meeting, but most of the questions I ask are sort of off the cuff, which is really a bit of a joust sometimes to kind of think of a smart answer on the fly. And so what I'm about to ask is a little, maybe not tricky, but I think it's a useful question in this vein. When you're talking about having a small team with resources constrained and you know that you can't buy the full suite or might not want to buy the full suite, I think it's often important when you do make a decision, when you do make a purchase, when you do implement to celebrate the spend and the capability you've created. And it's super important to share that celebration with the people in authority, meaning the people that gave you the money. Talk us through the kinds of things that you like to personally create and share back to say, hey, it was smart to give me money. This is what I just did. How do you share that or how have you shared that in your past? Because CISOs and security leaders all over universally almost mess this up. And so it's going to be one of the questions I hound on. And you've been given no prep on this. I'm asking you cold, but it's important to mark your celebrations. It's important to share that out. How do you do that? Yeah. So the quick answer is you show them the metrics of the new product and how it helped either detect something or block something. Um, but that's not the right answer, or at least not my opinion, the right answer. The right answer is showing them how it's actually made people's lives at the company better. And I'll use email as an example. So most companies now have some level of email filtering in place. And I show a couple different metrics from that one. I show how many emails are we blocking all the time? And if we weren't blocking it, these would be cluttering your inbox. But I also show people's reaction when something does get through either intentionally that we push through because we do phishing simulations or something that does slip through the filters. And I show the maturity of how the end users are replying to that and responding to that. And I think that has helped me a lot over the years, not just email, but in other areas as well, where whether it's system patching or knowing how to recognize a bad website or a website link that maybe doesn't make any sense, being able to show how the end users are maturing in their view of how security is being done, to me is always a huge win. And to your point, I can't buy everything to do everything, but I set everything up so there are always milestones. Nothing's ever going to be complete in security. Nothing's ever going to be done. I'm never going to be able to plant the flag in the ground and say, we're secure, we're done. But I can always reach for milestones and set milestones to say, we're going to do these three things over the next three to six months. And when we accomplish those, I'll be able to show some benefit from that. And, and that's kind of how I try to approach management. 
showing them that there are consistent small wins. I think it's good also to, I think repetition, this is going to sound really silly, but I've found, especially in crisis, but anytime you're in a build mode to say, look, if we're working on something, you're going to know that I'm working on one of three things. Three seems to work really well to say it's going to be improve this, mature that, and eliminate, you know, whatever, whatever it is, right? And, and people begin to hear it over and over and over, and they expect it to come out of your mouth. And so when you have a request, you can almost cite back to your own words prior. You may be familiar with me saying these things. This particular request falls into the second bucket, which is the elimination of, or the maturing of, whatever that is. And people kind of expect it, almost like song lyrics. And operationally, I had something similar for those who have listened where it's a little bit silly, but it was always, the words were different, but it was find bad stuff, fix bad stuff, provide excellent customer service, and then getting credit for it. Operationally, everything we did was going to fall into one of those four buckets. And again, it's kind of corny, but it works. I found that it worked for me. And I think you're speaking a very similar language. Is there anything else that may be operationally that you say that kind of a mantra or, you know, we talked about how to share it up. Is there anything that you do operationally that might be similarly discussed or shared with your staff? So operationally, I currently hold monthly meetings with the IT team across the company to show them different things that we're doing from a security front, different threats that are coming up. I try to keep that fresh. But again, to your point, I repeat it every month. So every month I'm talking about these threats or, or these activities that I know the properties need to be working on to do improvements. So yeah, I, I absolutely agree with the repetitive nature and setting things up so that you are doing that at an operational level. And like everybody, I struggle with it because I hate sounding like a broken record. I feel like I should get to a point where I should be talking about something else. If I'm continually talking about the same thing, what am I not talking about? So it, it's a balance. And I am always working to get better at it, but I do agree that uh, repetition works and making sure that people are hearing the same message over and over works. And with my security teams, I've always made sure that we're saying the same thing in the same manner, not trying to one-up each other, not trying to work on our pet projects. We all have pet projects and by all means, work on them when there's downtime, but don't make that be a focus. Let's stay focused on the main project. So I constantly try to work with the security teams to make sure that we're focused on only a few things at a time while not ignoring the other stuff. You know, one thing you mentioned earlier, I, I wrote it down actually that I want to come back to is you talk about end user maturity. And one of the things that I really like to share about end user maturity is if you develop capabilities internally that sort of protect them and keep the machines from being compromised or their credentials being compromised. You should have a lower instance of endpoint re-imaging and a higher ability to research the problem. Meaning, because you're able to research the scope of whatever the issue is, you can better determine and investigate more completely. And ultimately, hopefully, if you've put in the right countermeasures and investigate agreeably, the impact to the user is kept as close to zero as possible. And so one of the things I always used to like to track is just enterprise-wide how many endpoints were re-imaged. And then why was it necessary when it was done? And what role did my team play in that? And I find a lot of organizations just sort of have this nuke button where they just, they're just zapping endpoints as sort of a default answer to everything. But over time could show leveling in the message up that we're not creating friction for the end user. They're able to keep their day moving forward in a 
reasonable way. I like to share these little things that pop into my mind when I talk to great people like you. There's just for the listener as well. Do you have anything like that that's similar? Would you double down on that or anything? Oh, I, I would absolutely double down on that. And I'll actually go back in time again to earlier days when I was running security at previous employers and in previous lives where I was more of what you were just describing of, there's a problem, just nuke it. I don't care how long the person's offline. We've got to get this fixed. Or I would be talking to the end users about implementing a new security protocol or a new security process. And they'd be like, oh, that's going to be disruptive. And my answer is like, but that's the right thing to do. And that's what we're doing. And I met a lot of resistance. So whenever you are in a situation where you have the opportunity to make something better, you have to balance. What am I doing? How am I making this better? Am I making this better for the ones and zeros to protect the data? Am I making it better for the end user? Because typically the two are opposite. If you're making it better to protect the data, typically that's making it harder on the end user. If you're making it easier for the end user, typically that's making it harder to protect the data. That's just, I don't want to call it a law. It just seems to be common sense that that's how things work. So to balance that, try to make sure that you're always focusing on implementing security in a way that has the least amount of impact on the end users. If an end user has something on their computer or their computer is throwing signals that it may have indications of compromise, the best thing probably isn't to pull that computer and nuke it and rebuild it because that's hugely disruptive to the end user. It's hugely disruptive to whatever's happening on that computer. So you're never going to find the root cause. You said it there. So you've got to balance that. And I agree with you. I see a lot of companies that set it up of when we hit this threshold of alert, simply pull the computer and rebuild it. I'm like, but you're going to constantly see that level of alert. You're never going to get to a point where you've realized what that is and how to combat it directly. And to be clear, I'm not saying you shouldn't nuke endpoints. I'm saying that it should not be the default route. And you often, and I think you're saying this as well, you often just end up destroying evidence or you deprive your team's ability to understand the real root cause. And in the process, you're just pissing people off. And honestly, it goes beyond just my own team. It's if we take the time to look at the end user's workstation and understand what they did or what happened on that workstation, they're going to end up learning something as well. So everybody learns, everybody improves. And that's really the end goal is to constantly have improvement across the entire enterprise. So I think that's a super important kind of analytic mindset, but also sort of a customer service first mindset to have. And that kind of gets into one of the questions I like to ask. What's one thing a security leader, CISO, the person in charge can do to increase their own confidence in their SOC or the team that represents the analytic capability? Because I meet many people in charge, and I'm surprised by this, but I meet many folks that aren't sure of their own definition of good, meaning they're not sure how well prepared they are to identify a problem and respond to it. So they sort of lack confidence. And it shows when they then have to represent themselves and their capabilities up to executives to say, hey, David, how sure are we that this is taken care of? And it's that pause. It's that, uh, uh we're going to check on that, right? David, what's one thing that you would recommend in general that a security leader can do to increase that confidence in their capability, in their SOC in particular? Talk to people, talk to the SOC team, talk to the security engineers, talk to the developers, talk to the end users, talk to management, get feedback on how are they feeling about things? Because that's how you're going to know whether or not you're doing the right things. 
talk to people outside of the company, join forums, join groups, figure out what are other people doing that are not in your company, maybe not even in your industry. Are they facing things that you're not aware of? And if they are, maybe you need to go back and talk to your SOC or talk to your security team and say, are we looking for this? Do we see this? And the same with, with management. Talk to the management team because chances are they're talking to their peers and their peers are saying, hey, my security team's doing this or, or my development team's doing that or something. I mean, they're exchanging stories. That's what makes a good leader is learning from others. So most leaders in most organizations are doing that. So as the head of a security program, you need to talk to them too and understand what are they seeing? What are they hearing? Because then that turns into a two-way conversation and it can help you also build the reputation of being somebody who's a forward thinker, of trying to figure out something's happening out there that's not happening to us. It's happening to others. It could happen to us. So let's start thinking about what would we do about it. I've experienced firsthand in several places, and those that listen might laugh at this because they'll know the example I'm referencing, but I'm being non-committal and non-specific in this. But you talk to some organizations, they say, oh, we don't have a malware problem. We don't have any malware here. And you're like, really? And you dig a little bit and you realize that's just a false assumption. It's based on, on ignorance, frankly. Or you might talk to some organizations that make the same statement and you realize, wow, they really do have things locked down. But until you dig in and often talk to the frontline SOC analysts, even ask them something that's non-technical, say, hey, what's the worst part of your job? What's the shittiest part of your job? And what are the common issues you see? And just listen, then shut up. It's amazing to me how many CISOs or people in charge haven't talked to their junior SOC analysts about their day. Hey, what do you do all day? What's the worst part of your job? It blows my mind when I go in and do coaching on this kind of stuff. Yeah, it really does. I think you're spot on to go in. And when you have those conversations, then David, when you're out and talking to your peers and others, you can say, well, you know what? I'm a part of these forums. And the common problem we see in our industry is this. Now, our situation is similar, but different in these three ways. Here's the challenges that we uniquely face, right? Here's the, and I know this because I've not only had conversations with the technicians, I've had conversations with my frontline staff, but also other business leaders. And I believe this problem will be getting better or worse because of these changes we're making, right? Migration to the cloud, M&A, whatever that may be, right? And that's, we need to get better, I think, at storytelling in those ways. And you outlined it very well. The way that you get better at that and increase your confidence is exposure and asking good questions. Yeah. And do it outside of your comfort zone. If you're talking to other business units within your business that you don't fully understand what they do, that's a good thing because you're going to learn from them. They're going to learn from you. If you're joining peer groups or forums that you may not be the subject matter expert in, it's okay to ask the question, I don't understand. Can you explain that to me? Even as a senior leader, it's okay to ask those questions because that's how we all learn. That's how we all continue to improve. That's the name of the game is just continual improvement. I agree. I'm laughing here a little bit because I want to ask like, okay, let's say you're maybe a new security leader or new CISO or, or whatever. Maybe you've been there a while. How do you frame that up? So let's say there's a business unit that makes a bunch of money and you don't know who runs it, but you're going to send that email. How do you, I'm going to put you on the spot right now, David, how do you craft that email? So there's the, I often say this, there's the chief money-making officer for your company and you don't know that person and you're going to send a note and you don't know what the hell they do or how they make the money, but you feel like you need to know them and introduce. What do you say in the note? So first of all, keep the note short. Long emails aren't, don't get read. 
Okay. Short email. Short, sweet email. Hey, I'm so-and-so. I think you're in charge of this. Am I correct in that assumption? If so, can we have a conversation? I want to learn more about X. Do you introduce yourself and you say, I'm the guy that, and finish that sentence? I'm the guy that needs to do something or wants to learn about this because this is how it's going to impact my job or how I think it's going to impact my job. Are you the right person to talk to? If you are, great. I'd like to have a longer conversation. Yeah. I'm one of the folks that's trying to prevent a bad outcome. I'd appreciate to learn more about your about how you make the money for us. David, we've already ripped through our hour. I've supremely enjoyed it. I've got one more question for you. Uh, pursuant to the name of our show, the new CISO, what's it mean to you to be the guy in charge and to be a new leader rather than subscribing to the older lines of thinking? How do you move forward? What's the thing that you'd recommend that the listener do? So again, learning over the years, the key word there when you're talking about being a new leader is new, not leader. You're new. You don't know anything at this point. So you need to ask questions, constantly be asking questions, constantly be trying to learn. As a leader, people are going to look to you for answers. Absolutely. And you will have some of those answers. But for the ones that you don't have those answers, don't be afraid to say, I don't have that answer, but I'm going to go get it and then go get it. Go find the answers. Go ask the questions. If you're not learning, then what's the point? (laughs) You got to learn every day. You said it very well, man. I think that's part of it is just saying, I don't know, and continue to learn. Yeah. And that's going to frustrate some people. Some other leaders are going to look at you and go, well, then what are we paying you for? But at the end of the day, you're better off being honest and saying, I I don't know that I haven't ever encountered that before. I haven't encountered the question that way before. Let me do some research. And at the end of the day, everybody will be better for it. You will have learned something. The person asking the question will have learned something and everybody will be in a better place. Excellent response. David, thank you so much for your time. No, thank you. This has been excellent. That's it for this episode of the new CISO. Thank you for listening. Check out more episodes on exabeam.com forward slash podcast. And remember to rate, review, and subscribe to get brand new episodes first.